I'm going to offer now a childhood memory, a kind of change of pace in the podcast, a sort of reminiscence of something that happened when I was in the fourth grade that uh, is of great interest to me, of course, being the protagonist and the uh, the innocent, and yet at the same time um, uh, it has a kicker that I find funny and delightful and memorable, and it sticks with me with a with a kind of um, happy uh, um, grand guignol uh, delight. And uh, this is the memory of attending Saturday matinees at the Calvert Theater on Wisconsin Avenue in Washington, D.C. Now, we often hear about the uh, great experience that uh, uh, people in the 1950s and early 60s had of going to uh, horror movies on a science fiction movies on a Saturday afternoon and uh, screaming their hearts out and uh, uh, these uh, movies which uh, looking back on them now are uh, very slight and uh, uh, in many ways awful and yet to us very wonderful these movies had a had an impact on us that was uh, decisive and lasting and for many people they became the reason we went into the arts uh, for myself uh, they were were always in a certain dialogue with the holy calling that I later um, took up in theology. But the story itself is so much fun and has such a uh, absolutely happy kicker that I need to tell it. I moved with uh, my family to Washington, D.C. from New York City in the uh, spring, uh, early summer of 1959. And because the school that uh, my parents hoped me to go to, St. Albans School, uh, was full that year, that is, uh, we moved too late for me to get into the to Form C, I had to wait a year uh, and enter in Form B or the fifth grade. So I spent a year at the uh, public high school, uh, the Hyde School, uh, in uh, Georgetown near where we lived. And uh, one of the oddball things that was set up for me to do was to take uh, group piano lessons at an elementary school that was used for all sorts of of other sorts of things about uh, about uh, uh, 10 or 15 blocks away from Hyde School going uh, north uh, up uh, Mount St. Alban. And so um, I was uh, dispatched on a Thursday afternoon or Tuesday afternoons with my little friend uh, Marty Valilla, who was probably of Ukrainian origin, of some Slavic origin, had fled with his family, as so many people had to this country. And uh, he, uh, his mother had a very strong accent, and Marty and I were uh, both in the fourth grade at Hyde Elementary School. And um, he uh, and I and his sister would go to these group piano lessons, which I quickly tired of. I mean, it was just awful. It was just agony for me to be in a group piano lesson. But the plus was that I got to know Marty, who lived, uh, I lived on Prospect Street and 34th Street in Georgetown, and he lived on uh, on uh, on uh, 33rd Street between uh, Prospect and M Street. And um, he uh, got this idea. We were both... Um, uh, golly, uh, nine years old. Maybe he was ten. I was nine, and he uh, kept saying, "Look, you gotta come uh, on a Saturday afternoon up at the Calvert Theater. They show monster movies." Now, this was news for me. I was, uh, I was, I loved uh, the trailer on television back in New York of the Angry Red Planet, and I was so open to this. But I was only nine years old. Um, but he made it very persuasive, and it was easy to be persuaded. And he said, "Guess what? Next Saturday afternoon, this is in." probably October of uh, 1959, he said, uh, they're showing a movie at the one o'clock matinee at the Calvert. You want to go? And I said, yes, of course. What's it called? And he said, well, it's called The Crawling Eye. 
Well, I mean, you had this little kid completely captivated. The crawling eye. I mean, immediately you have a picture of a of an eye that's slithering and disgusting and gross uh, across, uh, you know, like uh, one of those uh, the, in War of the Worlds, one of the Martian characters, an eye with tentacles. And so the poster at the movie theater had that, but I didn't know anything about it except it sounded like a wonderful idea. And we got permission from our mothers to walk up 34th Street, actually 35th Street, <clears throat> all the way from Prospect up uh, past uh, the Volta um, Playground, Volta Place Playground, and further up uh, um, through the um, uh, past, uh, uh, what was at that point, Gordon Junior High School, onto Wisconsin Avenue, up past the Church of Divine Science, which is still there. Uh, the actual walk has changed very, very little. And this is the year 2011, and it's changed very little uh, since then. And uh, up uh, Wisconsin Avenue till we got to the Calvert Theater. Now, the Calvert Theater was on the north side of Wisconsin Avenue, right where the Calvert Liquor Store is now, sort of a place of pilgrimage, pilgrimage for so many. But at that point, there was a theater there, and it was there for a long time. I think it was there till the early 1970s. It was actually a, a beautiful theater, and when it was first uh, created in the 30s, it was sort of a masterpiece of... <coughs> of uh, close-in suburban um, uh, theater design, and I've got pictures of it, and it was uh, very streamlined and had a real sort of uh, art deco feeling, but none of that mattered to me at all. I know that it was that way, and I've seen pictures of it since, but Marty and I go up there to see The Crawling Eye, and I'm just alive with anticipation and a little scared because The Crawling Eye, this is something that doesn't sound, uh, I mean, obviously it's an alien, right? It's got to be. Um, now, I've learned a lot about that movie since, but I'm trying to see this through the eyes of a child because it it was um it was a, a decisive memory what happened uh, what happened for me that afternoon? We walked into the theater. We got there just on time, and we were just the two of us. We paid our thirty five cents or whatever it was. And the place was filled, and it was almost dark. So, um, I mean, it was like they were still showing coming attractions. And it was packed with young kids, mostly little boys, young boys, you know, between the ages of sort of 8 and uh, 14. And not many girls, just packed with little, little kids. And uh, But we were just us. And so we, we had to go way down to like the second row to find a seat. We got a popcorn or whatever it was. And Marty had done this before, but not many times. And I got down there, and the movie opens, and... Um, what happens in the beginning of this movie, as I saw it, was uh, you have some uh, some uh, Swiss uh, climbers there, Englishmen, who are climbing uh, the, in the Alps, and two of them are uh, sort of pausing on a on a precipice and waiting for their third, who's above them, and uh, they say, uh, "Are you coming, Joe, or whatever it is?" He said, "Yeah, I'm coming. It's a, there's a lot of fog up here. I can't I can't uh, the fog is closed in. I can't see much. I'm I'm finding my way." Give me a little time. I'll make it. And then they sort of wait. And then you hear his voice saying, you know, there, there's something coming. I I think I hear I, there's something coming. Oh, I. Ah! And you see on the screen uh, something, obviously the guy falling past them with a rope from the precipice above. And they say, oh, no. And they grab uh, they grab the rope, and he's obviously been fallen, and they're pulling it up, the rope, hand over hand, pulling it up, hand over hand. And suddenly, 
Just as they're about to see it, you see what is now obviously a dummy, but that wasn't to us. It was the guy, right? They're, they're pulling it up, and you see them getting almost there with the fella pulling him up, and, and one of the guys who's pulling him says, and he hides his head and he lets the rope go. And the other guy doesn't see whatever he's been seeing and he's pulling and pulling and pulling and he's doing everything he can. He says, help me, help me. Don't let go. Of the, help me, please. I need your help. And then you see on the screen the, um, the rope. Uh, it's against the, the lip of the stone and it's being rubbing against the stone and fraying. You know it's going to happen. Fraying, fraying, fraying. And pop and off it goes. And the guy goes, the, the body obviously goes careening down the precipice to certain death. And the fellow who's holding the rope is so hopeless, and he turns to his comrade who's still got his hands uh, over his eyes, and he says, What? Why did you let go? Why did you let go? And the fellow says, But didn't you see him? Didn't you see him? He didn't have a head. -da -da -da. And then the credits come on, The Crawling Eye. Well, here's nine-year-old. Never seen anything like this. I was so absolutely grossed out and shocked that I literally got up and I said, Marty, I have to leave. And I ran up the aisle out of the theater and just was shaking in the lobby. I actually ran all the way outside. Now, Marty came with me immediately. He's my little friend, right? He comes with me. He said, oh, he said, wasn't that cool? That was so gross. And I said, yes, I, 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 I can't go back in. I can't go back. I'm sorry. I just have to go home. I can't go back in. So dear Marty, poor guy, was denied the crawling eye. And he um, and I uh, went home back down 35th Street. I said goodbye to him at his house. And I went in. And, but, but I was stunned absolutely stunned by the crawling eye. Now, years later, I discovered that this movie was really uh, the English, it's an English movie. It was called in England, The Trollenberg Terror. That's a really compelling title. And I saw it a few times, but it was never The Crawling Eye, although that's what it was called in America. And finally, thanks to my friend uh, Robin Anderson, she, by sheer um, what is today called, or used to be called in the 70s, serendipity, came across a, a copy of a CD that her... Um, her uncle uh, had and gave it to me after he died. And it was a CD he had gotten off some satellite science fiction network. He had gotten the actual American credited print, The Crawling Eye, with the entire thing, beautiful, but with the original credits as I remember it. So I now own the actual thing that we saw on that fall Saturday afternoon in 1959. Well, I was hooked. And wouldn't you be? The Crawling Eye, he didn't have a head. Now, it took about 20 years before I ever saw what actually happened. And then on TBS or TCM, this movie's on regularly, uh, it then uh, became, uh, I saw the whole thing and I realized what I had missed with Forrest Tucker and some wonderful um, English actress who's very pretty and all this kind of stuff. But uh, it, it was lost on me because all I could remember was the overwhelming shock of hearing that he didn't have a head. And we didn't even really see it. All you saw is kind of, they gave you a glimpse of it, but it was enough to, to send this little kid running out of the aisles. Well, that was uh, the Calvert Theater. And um, I, I haven't, uh, th 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 that's, the, that's the great uh, message of the story. He didn't have a head. Well, we were marked for life. And then uh, within weeks of that, uh, I went down to Pat's newsstand on M Street, which was between uh, 
35th Street and 34th Street on the, obviously, the Georgetown side, and found by sheer divine providence my first ever copy, I think it was number 12, of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, which had Oliver Reed in Curse of the Werewolf, a very brilliant, lurid yellow cover by um, Basil Gogos, the illustrator, which, again, a a, a vital and um, genetic moment in the history of the human species for me was to find that first issue, number 12, possibly 13, of uh, famous monsters of Filmland, and from then life was never going to be the same again. Now, I want to just finish this account of going to the Calvert Theater because now, of course, I was hooked and I was you know, I'd been through it, I'd been through the initiation and I could sort of maybe imagine trying it again having failed the first time, but failed with tremendous uh, emotional impact. And so Marty and I tried again the next week. Now this time the movie was called The Alligator People. And this movie had um, Beverly Garland in it, a very good performance, and a, um, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. and, and George McCready, who played the, the, uh, the mad scientist or the sort of assisting mad scientist, to Frida Innescourt, the English actor who played the mother of the guy who was turning into an alligator. And this movie, I'll see it through the eyes of a child rather than through the eyes of the movie that I know so well now. And we went to this movie. And we sat in it, and I was really hoping, because the posters were great. They showed a guy, but it, it was a little hard to tell. They didn't show everything. They show a guy with a lot of green scales, and it looked really cool. But the movie starts out extremely boring, and uh, Marty and I got very bored because it, it starts out with a long, long uh, kind of a Bridie Murphy type of thing. She's Beverly Garland, plays a nurse who is completely in amnesia about these terrible things that happened to her and to her husband. And um, so there's this long sequence before you even get to the flashback of Beverly Garland kind of um, being put under hypnosis and it's t- being taped on a 12-track or a 2-track or a no-track tape recorder as they're listening to her going into a regressive memory about this terrible experience she's had just a few years ago in Louisiana. And uh, I just remember my saying to myself, oh, this is so, I was, get to it. Um, but we knew that something was up, that something was going to happen. And we did sit through it. We were only nine, but we sat through it. And what I remember about the alligator people is that at the very end, there was an extremely cool thing. I'm just trying to focus on what I remember as a child. And what I remembered <clears throat> was that at the very end, they're trying to um, uh, uh, put radiation on the poor fellow who's been turning into an alligator to reverse the process. But Lon Chaney, who's horrible with a hook on his hand because his uh, hand was bitten off by an alligator years before. He gets all mad at George McCready and at the woman who's running this, quote, sanatorium. And uh, he uh, runs in and right in the middle of when they're giving this guy the right kind of cobalt uranium treatment or whatever it is, he attacks George McCready and everything goes terrible and the wrong buttons get pressed. And instead of uh, giving him the right dose, they like quadruple the dosage. And you see this this sort of very obvious special effect, but to us extremely cool, of this radiation kind of machine. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, the uh, poor fella 
is actually the transformation into an alligator is sped up, and he becomes an alligator. But what it the, the, it's actually very good as an alligator suit. He's wearing his slacks uh, and a pair of shoes. It looks like, uh, but from the waist or belt up, it's an actual. He's turned into a complete alligator, a total alligator skin all around with alligator sort of these little horrible alligator kind of hands that are really yucky and attenuated and and awful like hooks and claws but the face it's a total alligator it's a gigantic alligator mask and the way they film it uh, everything's being blown up in the background and so there's all this smoke and so you first you see all this smoke and you see this kind of outline of an alligator and then the smoke blows away and the more it blows away this is the payoff for a movie like this for a child for anybody certainly for the child and me <clears throat> is suddenly the smoke blows away and there is the full-blown half alligator man and he gets up and he rips off the the you know the belts that are tying him to the gurney gets up and kills everybody and uh it's a terrible situation and he is his wife screams and poor wife poor beverly garland she is so faithful and so dear and so beautiful and he uh walks off to sort of commit suicide in the after killing lon cheney jr and george mccrady and i think frida innescourt he uh he walks off into the swamp where he's in fact devoured by his brethren real alligators well but it was this shot through the fog of the head of the alligator, and it was just breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. Uh, you you would never recover for it uh, from it. And this particular event, we sat through. We sat through the whole thing, and we said, "Isn't that cool? That is so cool. Can you believe how cool that was when he turned into an alligator?" Samardi so and I had really hit pay dirt with the alligator people. And uh, let it be simply said, I bear witness, or as someone I love said recently, I pay witness to this uh, uh, to this uh, uh, determining childhood memory of a man turning into an alligator and poor Beverly Garland having uh, missed most of the crawling eye because of the, he doesn't have a head. Now, uh, there are three more memories of the Calvert Theater in this particular um, podcast, and they were all in that same period. Uh, around the winter, once I discovered famous monsters and I saw instead of the sort of second run monster movies for the matinees that they would have at the Calvert excuse me I realized that you could see first run B Hollywood horror films and sometimes European horror films at the downtown theaters like Archie O'Keefe's uh, Lowe's Palace, Lowe's Capital, and later the Avalon and some of the other, um, the Translux, but mainly the Avalon uh, and especially uh, Keith's and the two Lowe's theaters downtown Washington. And then uh, uh, I'll do a different podcast on taking the 30 bus down to see first run, uh, like all the Edgar Allan Poe's, uh, Roger Corman's, etc., etc. I'll talk about that, and that's a different experience, uh, And although it's of the same general sector. But um, before that happened, we continued to go. And at this point, I think I went to, with Marty to one of them, went alone to one of them, and then the last one I'll finish with. The third one we saw, and it was only, I think, probably a week after the alligator people, was The Colossus of New York. Well, this is a famous movie for those who care. It's a kind of parable of a little child whose father is killed in an accident and then his grandfather um, uh, saves the brain of his father and puts a kind of robot body on him, but it's a very well-done robot. It's a very humanistic robot because the face is like Frankenstein. It's basically a way to combine the Frankenstein monster, but a beautiful uh, copper-looking face with eyes that go on and off, but a very humanoid 
humanoid or hu human face of the robot, but then with this superstructure that is entirely um, a machine covered with a cloak, a gigantic sort of a Roman toga type cloak. So you have the you have the 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 sort of great cloak, which is very Roman and Atlantean. You have the Frankenstein head, but without the scars. It looks like an alien. And then you have the, the body with these funny boots. I mean, it's just, it's just pure, what today is called pure camp. But we didn't think about that. We just loved it. So I go to see the Colossus of New York, which I really like, but the child only remembers one image. But it is an image that has never left me, and it was a very compelling and memorable one. Because at the end of the Colossus of New York, the, the brain, I think Ross Martin plays the voice, the brain inside the body of this huge, um, this huge robot obviously goes bad. The brain becomes diabolical, and uh, he goes to kill his brother. There's a lot of sibling rivalry themes apparently, and he's going to meet everybody at the United Nations and have a big surprise at the United Nations. And I think Otto Kruger's in it. But forget all that. All I remember this is this gigantic robot is going to uh, to to uh, meet his brother and kill him. It's in New York City, and then uh, take a little minor detour to the uh, United Nations. Well, what is extremely cool is the special effects people have him crossing the East River underwater. Now, here's a robot with a huge cape and these eyes, these piercing um, artificial eyes of light and this amazing kind of Frankenstein alien face that's really smooth and interesting and large and this gigantic forehead and it's a little bit of, as I said, the This Island Earth meets uh, Frankenstein meets Atlantis meets the ancient Romans meets robots meets mad scientists. It's just wonderful. And the music, which is by a fellow named Van Cleave, is very atmospheric. It's kind of a show. It seems very, uh, doesn't work at all with the material. It's kind of a Chopin nocturne type of music. But to me, it was incredibly cool. And this, the, all they've done is they have the thing walking under the East River, and they show it. There are two shots. It's one, but it's repeated twice, of the robot going through the East River. And they just have it through a filter. You know the kind of thing where it looks like it's underwater because the light's refracted and reflecting. Uh, it, 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 whether it's in an aquarium, I think it's just a filter. But it's extremely evocative. It looks like the robot is walking underwater. And because I knew the East River and had grown up as a little child on, um, in, in, uh, in overlooking the East River on the uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan, that was very familiar to me. And the idea that the dirty, yucky, horrible East River, that there could be the, the robot. I think there's even a scene over the East River uh, where you see the sort of lights of the, of the robot walking through. But the main shot is of the robot going through with this very atmospheric piano music. And it just absolutely, oh, it is so great. The Colossus of New York. So that made a memory. So look, I've talked about the, he didn't have a head. I've talked about this amazing alligator man who gets up from the gurney and he's half man, half alligator with this incredible alligator snout and face and teeth and eyes. And then I've talked about walking under, uh, walking through the East River, under the East River, or in the East River, but submerged with this cloak. What else is there? Now, um, about another week later, before the great um, revelation came to me that I could see first run be... Hollywood horror movies downtown as opposed to second run matinees. <clears throat> 
before that happened, I went to another one. And this was called The Conquest of Space. Uh, George Pal directed it. I know nothing about it. It's pretty lame if you've seen it. I own it, Natch. And uh, it's pretty lame today, and it has a lot of religious, uh, in a way, gobbledygook. It, it doesn't work, unlike some of his other religious moments, like in War of the Worlds. But it doesn't work. It's a mi mishap, the movie. But it has a couple of great special effects. And what made a tremendous impression, again, on the child was first the space station. There's an opening prelude in which a very deep voice like Marvin Miller or Paul Fries or one of those guys, but it was just an announcement saying, in the year 19... 69, uh, America had established a rotating space platform outside the Earth in hopes of constructing a um, thing to the moon or something like that. Uh, and, and, and you see this, uh, with a lot of mat work, this turning space station, and it's very good. And then you see this spaceship that's obviously coming up from the Earth. It's very fakey, as that was the word we would have used in those days. But to us, it was completely real. This kind of rocket ship is coming from the Earth, a kind of shuttle. It's like, it's like uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, but made it made at home by a 17-year-old. I mean, the, in 1960, the, the special effects are awful but wonderful, and I was completely hooked by this thing. And then when they take off, they end up not going to the moon, but they end up going to Mars. And they have that, you know, that scene where they, the, the gravity, the G, what is it called, G's, the G's, G-force, and they all grimace. And you see all these men with this incredible pressure on their, uh, and, and their, their uh, smile, their, like Mr. Sardonicus, their, their faces, uh, like elastic, they're under this terrible pressure, and their eyes and their faces and their nose are all flattened. And then finally they're into space and they get normal again. Well, the G's are the pressure of the takeoff. And they repeat the moment about three times in the movie. I mean, it's, a, it's obviously the people who made it knew that that was impressive to people who were watching it. And the geez, the force on these poor guys, and I never could forget the grimacing faces as they uh, go on the uh, acceleration to Mars. And then the other thing I remember is the spaceship sort of crash lands on the Martian surface. And of course, all we wanted to see was aliens. The only thing that mattered to us is that it would be Martians. Sadly, there are no Martians. I think there's a little plant that gets uh, that finally grows on Christmas or something, but it, it, it they crash land on a on a kind of obviously a it's pathetic uh, uh, a table uh, which with a lot of red sand. Uh, to us, it was very convincing and very cool. But what I remember there is the force of of the G's on the men's uh, elasticated, elongated, pained, stressed faces. Now uh, the last thing I'll bring this to a conclusion. Um, actually, uh, the Calvert story has a touching conclusion because after seeing The Crawling Eye, The Alligator People, The Colossus of New York, and Conquest of Space, there was the discovery of Archie Keith's Lowe's Capital and Lowe's Palace Theater, which I could also get to. It, we, it wasn't as if this is before the invention of the steam locomotive, but uh, it seems like it was yesterday to me. But there was no worry about our getting on buses and going places at age 9 and 10. Uh, the, the, everything today is so hyper. It's not that the threat has increased. It's that the sense of control and insecurity is very distorted. But at that time, I'd just get in the bus or I'd walk, you know, 20 blocks to this thing and and it was never thought to be, and, and all of us did. It wasn't, it wasn't unusual. Um, but a year later, I entered uh, St. Albans School, the B form or fifth grade, and I was invited to a birthday party. And I'd sort of outgrown the Calvert Theater matinees in favor of these uh, downtown uh, first-run horror films, which I'll talk about later. And um, I was invited to a party. 
to and what we did, uh, my little friends, as we would call them, about eight of us from school. I was very new in the class; had been only there about two weeks at school, and. Uh, I was invited to this birthday party, and we were all going to go see the Saturday matinee at the Calvert Theater. And I said, oh, my gosh, I know about this. I, this is something I'm very familiar with. Uh, but um, sadly, or unsadly, partly because the mother had to approve it, um, it was a different kind of movie. The, it was the last time I ever attended a Saturday matinee was now one year later with my little friends from St. Albans School. And I'm invited, and we go, and I'm in very familiar territory, but I really don't tell them about it. I want to find out what they think about whether they think it's as cool as I do, that the crawling eye or the black sleep or the alligator people used to play there. So we go in, and the movie is The Last Days of Pompeii. But it's the Italian Last Days of Pompeii with Steve Reeves, I think. I believe I later on found out that this is Sergio Leone's first movie. So it's really a quality movie, but I don't know anything. All I know is it's all dubbed. You can even tell it's totally dubbed with really beautiful women, which we were not interested in. We were fifth graders. And... Uh, um, the violent, we were we went of course for one reason we wanted to see we knew that there'd be a volcanic eruption and that it would be really cool to see the entire city of Pompeii destroyed on film. What was what we didn't realize is there was a lot of gladiator fighting and of course that got everybody hooked. And there was one scene in which somebody is found having been murdered the night before some Roman senator who's not good. He's he's a, not a good person or maybe he is. I think he was not good though. And he's murdered with a with a with a, a dagger in the back and there's all this blood. You see the man, you see the dagger, and you see the blood. And we all said, oh, that is so cool. And then the gladiator contests, when, when the gladiator kept getting uh, uh, faked out by another gladiator. And we just loved the gladiator contests, you know, with the reticularius or whatever it's called, you know, the guy with the with the net and the other guy with the gladius. and it, We were in heaven, but the coolest thing was the eruption. Now, the eruption is pretty pathetic. The movie is pretty good, actually, and it made an impression, even in the fifth grade, uh, or more than ever in the fifth grade, because of the blood. But when the, uh, the city is destroyed, uh, that immediately set all of us onto the... Uh, remember those uh, science uh, experiments in science class where you'd go and you kind of had a um, kind of papier-mâché volcano, and then you put the stuff in it, and I forget what it was, and then the teacher would light it, and it would blow up like a volcano. Well, that's basically what the volcanic, uh, volcanic eruption in the last days of Pompeii by Sir G. Leone is. The, it's sort of a tabletop volcano, and it's really not very good, but we thought it was great, and so spent the next four weeks as a class just trying to figure out how to do that kind of volcanic thing with the science teacher, a wonderful man named Alexander Haslam, how we could blow it all up on the table. Well, um, uh, we loved it. I loved it. The kid, I got on well with my friends, and uh, that was the last time I knowingly entered the Calvert Theater in the mid-early fall of 1960, having been baptized into these great and stunning dramas such as The Crawling Eye in the fall of 1959. That's a childhood memory. I hope you found it uh, at least um, happy, because it's full of joy. And I say to one, and I say to all, God bless. <laughs>